Father, we thank you for this evening. Thank you for these men. And we are looking forward to opening up the scriptures together and seeing what we can learn from the, uh, the lips of Jesus. I pray that you would help us to uh, listen attentively, not to me, but to your spirit as he guides us and directs us and he uh, takes the scriptures and brings them alive into our lives. And I pray that each of us would be changed by what we hear. Lord, I pray for those who are bringing burdens here tonight of various kinds, whether it's uh, financial, relational, health issues. Father, I pray that they would uh, be able to just leave those at your feet and, and, and just listen and learn from you. And um, Father, if, there, if there's anybody here who needs healing in their life, I pray that that might take place tonight, especially spiritual healing, Father. We love you and we appreciate you and we thank you for all that you do for us and we give you all the praise, the glory, and the honor. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, just so you guys know, uh, many of you know, um, remember Logan, who used to work for me. And Logan uh, is now the uh, pastor for young adults and uh, college students at First Baptist Conway, which is outside of Temple, or, at, or First Baptist Belton, outside of Temple. And um, he and Jordan had their baby uh, Saturday. And so they have a little boy, uh, Lane Deacon. It's cute, so therefore it looks like Jordan. Um, and everybody's healthy. And they actually had it here in Fort Worth because, uh, of course, her being pregnant, she wanted to use her doctor here. And then once the doctor gives them an okay, they're going to move her down there with the baby. But uh, he's doing great. The church where he's uh, um, working loves him. Uh, that I, I don't understand, but they do. Um, but uh, just keep praying for them. Uh, little Lane Deacon's uh, doing great, and Jordan's great. But I just wanted you guys to know that. Secondly, if you want CDs from last week, they're back there on the counter. So if you want to take those with you, if you missed last week. And then also, if you are a reader, and I know many of you are and some aren't, but if you like to read, back on that table is a, a blog that I did this summer on the entire Sermon on the Mount, which is going to go into far greater detail than I can go into in six weeks. So if you like to read and you want to do that, it's back there. So tonight we're going to pick up where we left off, and we are in chapter 5 of three chapters on the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, we're going to do the second half, and uh, somebody mentioned just earlier that um, they weren't here last week, but they heard that I talked a long time. And uh, <laughs> yeah, well... Yeah, just go ahead and sigh, because it's going to happen again tonight. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of stuff in this book, okay, especially this passage. So uh, I'll go as fast as I can, but um, sorry, I didn't write this sermon. We're going to look at uh, chapter 5, starting at verse 17. What I want to do is I want to read it together, okay, just verses 17 on through the rest of the chapter, and then we'll kind of take it apart. So Jesus is speaking, and he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now I want to stop there and I want to remind you what we said last week. 
try to get into the mindset of a first century Jew sitting, standing on the hillside as Jesus gives this message the very first time. Uh, Try to forget the fact that you're a 21st century American living in Fort Worth, Texas, and you know everything there is to know about the Sermon on the Mount, and you know what every one of these verses means. Put that behind you and just come at this with just kind of a blank slate and, and hear these words for the first time and think like a Jew. How would he receive this information? That one we just read ought to hit you like a brick. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Then he goes on and says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says you fool be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but, I, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool, his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil." You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, again, if you're a first century Jew sitting on that hillside and you hear just what I read come out of the mouth of Jesus, I don't think you're sitting there going, man, preach it, brother. Um, I don't think you're nodding your head going, man, this is great stuff. I, I mean, I can't wait till next week. I mean, this is good. I think you're confused. I think you're um, angry, especially if you happen to be divorced. Uh, I think you're frustrated because I know every guy in the, in the crowd's frustrated because every guy in the crowd has lusted. 
And he's just basically told you, you've committed adultery. And, and so all of this stuff is kind of flying at him. And remember, you got to keep in mind that these people don't really know who he is yet. It's early on in his ministry. He's only got four disciples in the crowd. He's got a crowd made up of all kinds of people, as we said last week, mostly peasants probably, but he's got religious leaders there because they followed him everywhere. He's thought to be a rabbi. He's a miracle worker. That's why the crowds are following him. So they're attracted to him, but they don't yet know who he is, and he's not yet made the claims that he will later make. And so you've got all this stuff coming out of his lips and people trying to absorb it. And just like you are, as we read it tonight, it's a lot to take in and, and to try to digest mentally. And he's not pausing and he's not unpacking it like we're doing here tonight. So it's just coming at you like water out of a fire hose. And as we said last week, this is part of this revolution that he's bringing, this radical new life that he's trying to inaugurate because he's the king. He's, he's the, the one who's been waited for, and he's ushering in something radically different. And there's two verses, one we already highlighted, but there's another one at the end that I want to highlight that should jump out at you and should hit you in the forehead like a brick. And the first one is this, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you're a good Jew, and if you go to the sacrificial system, and you do your sacrifices, and you go to the synagogue, and you, you do the things you're supposed to do, or at least try to do them, you are hoping to get into the kingdom of heaven. And what did he just tell you? You've got to have a better righteousness than who? The scribes and Pharisees. And I'm telling you, for the people sitting in that crowd, that was impossible. That, that was, nobody can do that. Because they're like the, the kings. They're the most righteous people on this planet. And you're telling me I got to be more righteous than them. It's impossible. Well, then at the end of this little section, he says, there, you therefore must be perfect. Now, that's bad enough. But then he says, as your heavenly father is perfect. And once again, it's like, wait a minute. I got to be better than the Pharisees when it comes to righteousness. And I got to be perfect like God is perfect. Are you crazy? Have you lost your mind? Do you want followers or not? Because I think these people are sitting there going, I don't know that I want any more of this. What happened to the healing? What happened to the miracles? I, you know, I don't know that I want to hear them speak. I just want to watch them do things. So this is all pretty radical stuff, right? And yet again, we got to keep in mind that he's speaking. I, I believe he's speaking somewhat prophetically because he's saying these things to people who are not believers, right? They're not yet believers because he has not even revealed who he is yet. He's definitely not gone to the cross. He's definitely not died and been buried and rose again and ascended on high. The Holy Spirit has not come. So none of these people, including the four disciples who happen to be in the crowd, are not believers at this point. So he is speaking of a life that is not yet available to these people. And he's preparing the way for what's to come. He's telling them, you think this about the law, and we'll see how he unpacks that. You think this, I'm telling you, it's this. And this is how you need to live as one who's been approved by God. He's upping the ante. He's making it much more difficult. And this idea of righteousness is probably the key topic 
throughout this whole thing along with the kingdom of heaven because righteousness is key to getting into the kingdom of heaven. All right? They thought they got into the kingdom of heaven by their own righteousness, self-righteousness, man-made righteousness. But we know this side of the cross, it's because of the righteousness of Christ, not mine, not yours. But it's still the key topic. But what he's going to really kind of drill into is what kind of righteousness is required? What do you need to do? How do you need to live to get into this kingdom that he's talking about? And then what kind of perfection is Jesus looking for? You know, that, that verse at the end of what we just read is, is uh, difficult for us even today as Christians having the Holy Spirit, that you are to be perfect as your Holy, your Holy Father is perfect. Um, it's, it's much like what Peter said, that you are to be holy as your Heavenly Father is holy. That's a high standard, and it's one that scares every one of us in the room. How do we do that? Well, we know that you can't do it in and of yourself. You can't do it in the flesh. But the key idea here is how do you get into the kingdom of heaven? Remember, that's the, that's the overarching theme of Matthew. The entire book is about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of, is, has come. And so how did the Jews believe you entered the kingdom of heaven? That's, that's something we have to understand as we go into this. Point number one was being a Jew. Why? Because they were the chosen people of God. And they are still the chosen people of God. That hadn't changed. We as a church don't believe in replacement theology. The church has not replaced Israel. Israel didn't blow it and God just threw up his hands and said, I'm done with you and I'm, gonna, I'm just going to the Gentiles. That's not what happened. We live in the church age and God is, is bringing uh, countless Gentiles to salvation but he's also bringing Jews to salvation. And there is a day coming when he will redeem his people. But for right now, he's concentrating his efforts on the church because we live in the church age. But in their day and age, how you got into the kingdom of heaven from their point of view was, first and foremost, you're a Jew. You're a descendant of Abraham. And secondly, you keep the law. You had to obey. Deuteronomy chapter 20, you have to do what God says, and you get blessings, and if you don't do what he says, you get cursings. So being a Jew, obeying the law. So this is going to raise a question as he goes through this, and this is why in verse 17 he starts talking about the law, the law and the prophets. Because as these Jews are sitting there listening to him, what they hear is something completely different from what they've known before. And the first thing they're going to think is, well, are, okay, so are you saying the law doesn't matter anymore? Because you're giving us a whole bunch of other stuff that doesn't seem to fit in. And is the law gone? Is the law null and void? No. And Jesus is going to tell them exactly that. Verse 17, he just come, comes right out and says it. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. Now, when you see that phrase law and the prophets, it's basically a summary statement of the Old Testament. It's a way of encapsulating what is contained in the, the Old Testament as we know it. So when he says the law and the prophets, it's the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. He says, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, not the smallest little accent mark on a letter, the crossing of a T, the dot above an I, none of that's going to change or pass until the law is completely fulfilled, okay? So he's telling them, 
in spite of everything that you've heard me say thus far, and last week we looked at the intro to this, the Beatitudes, he says, I'm not here to get rid of the law. I'm not bringing you another law or a new law. But it still sounds really radical to them. It still sounds like something that's kind of off the chart. It, it sounds, I'm not sure what he's teaching. Is this the law? Is it new law? Is he a rabbi? Is he, is he a new teacher? Is he bringing a new religion? What is he doing? Because so much of this stuff doesn't sound right to them. And Jesus is going to squelch any idea that they may have that I'm getting rid of the law. I'm replacing the law. Why? Because he came to fulfill it, not to replace it. Over in Galatians 3.19, Paul asks a, a very important question. And it's one that still needs to be asked today. And it was asked in his day, why then was the law given? The law of Moses, the Mosaic law. And he tells us it was given alongside the promise. The promise of what? Jesus, the coming of the Messiah. He says it was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. If anybody ever asks you why was the law given, there's your answer. To show people their sin. Why was the Mosaic law given to the people of Israel on Mount Sinai? To show them their sin. It was never intended to be a list of rules that they could keep. God knew they couldn't keep it, and he had a plan already in place from before the foundation of the world because he knew they wouldn't keep it. His son. Jesus Christ was not plan B. God didn't give the law and then suddenly raise his head up and go, what happened? They didn't keep it. Oh my gosh, I got to do something. They can't get saved. Nobody will get into heaven. I'll be here all by myself. Jesus, go down there, do something. That's not how this happened. He already planned for Jesus to go because he knew they couldn't keep the law because the law was designed to show people their sin. But the law was designed to last only until the coming of the child who was promised. Now that doesn't mean, and Jesus is kind of clarifying this, it does not mean when Jesus came, the law went away. What did Jesus just say? I didn't come to abolish it. I came to fulfill it. He's not getting rid of it. He goes on in Romans chapter 5. God's law was given. If you have any doubts what he's talking about, he says it again. So that all people could see how sinful they were. So God gives this law, this list of do's and don'ts and behaviors and, and rituals and rites and instructions. And, and they could not keep it. And it showed them how sinful they were. Why was the sacrificial system needed? Because they couldn't keep the law. And so the way they got atonement was through the sacrificial system. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. God provided a way, a temporary way, an incomplete form of atonement. But the main purpose of the law was that so people could see how sinful they really are. And isn't it true when you think even of your own kids that it, when, it, when you give rules to your kids? This morning I had to babysit my uh, one-and-a-half-year-old granddaughter so my daughter could go get her teeth clean. And uh, she is cute as she can be. I love her to death. But she's already at that stage of rebellion. I mean, she's one-and-a-half. Don't touch that. And she'll look at me and just kind of... And then she'll just go ahead and touch it. I just told you don't touch that. And then she'll touch it again. What's she waiting for? Me to do something. Either let her get away with it or 
spank her for it. She gets up on the table. Don't get on the table. And so she just stares at me. Okay, if you're going to get on the table, you have to sit down. So she kind of goes like this. I'm like, no, 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 you got to sit down. And she does it again. What's she waiting for? For me to either let her do it or spank her. She knows she's wrong. I mean, she's one and a half. She can't even talk. But she knows she's wrong. We know we're wrong. And the law shows us we're wrong. Do you ever break out into a sweat when you see a police car on the side of the road? When you're coming up on it? Why do you break out in a sweat? Because you're speeding. You know you're wrong. And that's exactly what the Scriptures do. And he says, but as people sin more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. See, God had a plan. God knew what he was going to do, and he was patient enough to let people continue to live in sin, continue to rebel against the law, because he knew he was sending his son to earth to provide what? Grace. And he came. And I love this verse, Romans 5, 6. When we were utterly what? Helpless, hopeless, mired in our sin, unable to save ourselves, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now that includes every guy in this room, right? Every guy. It includes every person who's ever lived or ever will live. He came and died so that what? So that we might be saved, but we have to know that we need salvation. One of the things Jesus ran up against with the Pharisees is they didn't think they needed a Savior because they already thought they were righteous. And that's why he said, as we looked at last week, I didn't come to help the sick or help the healthy, I came to help the sick, those who know they need a doctor. Well, Jesus came. In Galatians 4, 4 through 5, when the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. That means he came and he lived under the law and he kept the law. God sent him by freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. So what did God do? He gave the law. The law was his commands, his expectations, what he demands for holiness. Nobody could live up to it. So he sent his son, Jesus Christ, took on human flesh, lived a life as a Jew under the law, kept the law to perfection, which is what made him the perfect sacrifice because he was sinless. And he did what none of us could have ever done. No Jew could have ever done and no Jew ever did except Christ. And it's what makes him our sin substitute. There's not a man in the room I could die for. Now, I could die for you. I wouldn't, but I could. I could, but I could not die for your sins. Why? Because I'm a sinner. You couldn't die for my sins because you're a sinner. You're marred by sin. Jesus Christ was not. Jesus Christ was sinless. And that is so important for us to understand. So the law, Paul tells us, was preparing for what? God's grace. It's all about grace. It's not about works. It's about grace. God's grace was revealed how? Through his son. When the time was right, Jesus came. Born of a woman. Under the law. In Galatians 2.21, I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless, Paul says. Worthless, without value. For if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. Do you get what he's saying there? If you could make God happy with you, if you could keep God pleased by you obeying the law or some other set of standards, 
there's no need for Jesus to have died. Even beyond that, there's no need for Jesus to have come. But he did. Why? Because no one could keep the law. All are sinful. All are worthy of condemnation. And so Jesus Christ came. Jesus Christ was the fulfillment. He fulfilled every messianic prophecy. And you can, we're not going to do it tonight, but you can go back and study the Scriptures. You can go on uh, the Internet and you can Google it. and it'll, You can find passages about Jesus Christ fulfilling prophecy, and He did. And He still is going to. There are prophecies He's fulfilled, and there are some that are yet to be fulfilled. But Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the prophecies. And I love this story of Jesus on the road to Emmaus after His resurrection... You know the story, and there's these two disciples. I think it's a husband and wife. The Scriptures doesn't tell us, but I just picture this husband and wife walking along. They're leaving Jerusalem. Jesus has died. He's been buried. They're demoralized. They're walking along and talking about everything that happened, and Jesus appears next to them, and they don't recognize him. And he goes, what are y'all talking about? And they look at him like, he, like he's you know, been living under a rock. Well, where have you been? Have you not heard what happened in Jerusalem? No, tell me. This is Jesus. He's got the nail prints in his hands and his feet, and he's got the spear scar in his side, and he's walking along with him. He goes, no, tell me all about it. I'd love to hear. And they basically tell him, it's, it's all over. We thought he was the Messiah. We thought he was coming to change everything, but he's dead. He's gone. And then Jesus opens their eyes. They're able to see him, and then he does this. He says to them, you foolish people, you find it so hard to believe all, the, all that the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Wasn't it predicted in the scriptures? Isaiah 53 and so many other places. Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, in other words, the law and the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Wouldn't you have loved to have been in that Sunday school class? Walking along with Jesus as he goes, hey, okay, let's look at, look at uh, Genesis. Let's look at Malachi. Let's look at Habakkuk. Let's look at Zephaniah. Let's, just pick, pick a book. I don't care. And I'll show you me. He didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. He came to fulfill every messianic prophecy. Not to replace them. He wasn't something new. He was exactly what had been prophesied. Now, what did the Jewish leaders struggle with with Jesus? He didn't look like what they were expecting, right? He didn't look like the Messiah they wanted. And we touched on this last week, but it's important for us to remember what they were looking for. And he didn't meet the bill. He wasn't the warrior king. He wasn't David on a white horse. He was this obscure Nazarene rabbi that just kind of came out of the woodwork and was capturing all these people's imaginations. But he certainly didn't look like the Messiah, but he says, no, I am the Messiah. And so he makes this statement in verse 19, and he says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments. Okay, he's been talking about the law and the prophets, and then he says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. That gets their attention. Nobody wants to be least in the kingdom of heaven, right? What do we know about two of the disciples when Jesus had already told them, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to die on a cross, and they come to him and say, hey, when you start up your kingdom, can I sit in your right, right hand and he sit in your left? 
They're already th- they're thinking about a totally different kind of kingdom, but they, they're looking for glory. Nobody wants to be least in the kingdom of heaven. And yet Jesus says, if you, what, relax one of the least of these commandments, teach others to do the same, you'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. What's he talking about? And what are the commandments he's talking about? For years, I thought he's talking about the law. Because it just, you know, every time I hear commandments, I think, I think, the Ten Commandments. I think of the law, but the more I study this passage, the more I don't think that's what he's talking about because he says, I didn't come to fulfill, I didn't come, or I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. In other words, the law is complete, and Jesus is giving other commands here, and we're going to see what some of those are in just a second. I think the commandments he's talking about are everything he's teaching in this sermon and that from that point forward. A number of years ago, I did a study on and taught it to the men here at this church on the commands of Jesus. And I, I know of at least 59 blatant commands of Jesus in the scriptures. And so Jesus was always giving commands. They were in line with the law, but they were outside of law in the sense that these are things that he was telling people to do, his people to do. And there are these non-negotiable commands that we're even going to look at tonight. So the commands he's talking about, I believe, are not the law. He's talking about his commands. And if you, if you squirrel, squirrel around with these commands I'm giving you, you will be considered least in the kingdom of heaven. And if you tell anybody else they don't matter, you'll be in the same boat. Because what Jesus is saying is important. That's why this this passage, these three chapters are so important for us, guys, because Jesus is telling you and I something that he expects us to obey. And yet we take this passage, this Sermon on the Mount, and we don't even get it. And if we do get it, we don't obey it. We, we just think it's some kind of clever speech he gave, but it doesn't seem to hold any weight with us. But he says, no, you better obey these commands that I'm giving you. Think about this, Matthew 28, 18 through 20, the great commission. We're all familiar with it. The problem is we just leave off the second half. It says, Jesus told his disciples, therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we stop there. I grew up Southern Baptist. Southern Baptists love to evangelize. Let's go get them saved. Get them in here. And then we just let them kind of hang there. And they never grow. They don't get discipled. Um, You just kind of starve to death. And every Sunday, it's another evangelistic sermon. And you're sitting there going, I'm already saved. I just want to, I need to eat. I'm hungry. Feed me. But what does he say? Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I've given you. See, we leave that part out. That's why I went back and studied what are the commands of Jesus? Because I looked at this and I thought, oh, wait, there's a second part. I'm supposed to be teaching other men and myself what the commands of Jesus are. Well, what are they? Well, here's just a few. Like I said, there's at least 59. Some think there's as many as 75. Let's say there's 20. That's a lot. And here's just a few. Repent, let your light shine, love your enemies, seek first the kingdom of God, judge not, choose the narrow way, fear God, take up your cross, follow me, take my yoke upon you, deny yourself, be born again. Oh, and keep my commandments is a commandment. These are just a few. 
So I think Jesus in this sermon is telling them, if you hear me say these things, and about half of these are in this message, he's saying, don't mess around with what I'm telling you. Don't negate them. Don't get rid of them. Don't tell people they don't count. They don't have to do it. Or you will be seen as least in the kingdom of heaven. Now see, that doesn't bother you and I. You know, we, we have this attitude, who cares? Um, at least I get in. But see, for the Jews, it, it, was, it resonated a lot more because this idea of hierarchy was probably a little bit more important to them than it is to us. And the idea of being least in anything was not something that was attracted to them. And Jesus is telling us, guys, we need to keep his commandments. And he's telling them and he's telling you and I today that I'm not getting rid of the law. I'm actually expanding on it in the sense of helping you understand what the law really meant and the kind of life that God expects of you. So he's clarifying. But it's no longer going to be a list to keep or attempt to keep. It's going to be a lifestyle to live. And that's what kind of hits me really hard every time I go back to this passage is this is the way I am supposed to live as a child of God, approved by God. Remember we said last week, the Beatitudes, if you want to read the Beatitudes, the best, I think the best translation of the word blessed is approved by God. It's not do these things and you will be blessed. It's you're already blessed, approved by God, so do these things. Don't get the cart and the horse mixed up. You are approved by God because you're a child of God because of Jesus Christ. So this is the way you are to live. And that's what he's telling us. And remember when he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus said, what? Love the Lord your God with all your soul, heart, soul, mind, and strength. And oh yeah, and the second one's just as good. Love your neighbor. See, that, those two things sum up everything we hear in this message. Love God, love your neighbor. Submission and selflessness. What do you and I struggle with? Submission and selflessness. Loving God. Well, I love God. Mm, okay. Sometimes. But oftentimes you don't. And it shows up in how you love other things more than you love God. Let's talk tomorrow morning when you wake up. What's the first thing on your mind? Is it God? Do you spend more time with God than you do with the newspaper? Do you spend more time with God than you do on the internet? Do you spend more time with God than you do getting ready to go to work? I love God. Well, really, do you? How would your marriage handle that kind of love? I love you, honey, but I'd rather spend time with my friends. I love you, honey, but I'm going to stay up and watch TV. You go to bed. I love you, honey, but I want to do this. I love you, honey, but I... See, we love God, we say, but it shows up in our actions. Love God, submit to him, obey him, live according to his rules and standards. Oh, and then love your neighbor. Love those around you. So what's he saying here when he says, whoever relaxes the, these commands that I'm giving you? That word means to loosen, to dissolve. Basically just to say they're not important. You either get rid of them or you diminish them. You ever had somebody say, you take this spiritual stuff way too seriously. Just... Calm down. Have some fun. Guys, we're out of time to have fun. I'm not telling you not to have a good time, not to enjoy your family, not to take vacations, but we don't have long on this world, I don't think. 
And, and we need to start getting serious about life. And if you tell people, hey, you're too serious about spiritual things. Hey, you, you spend too, too much time in the Word. You're basically saying you're relaxing the commands of, of Jesus Christ. And he says, if you do that, you will be called least. Insignificant is what that word means. You will be unimportant, lacking in value. You know what I really think this passage means? This part of the passage, I don't even think you'll be in heaven. Because it says you will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Now we can read that and it sounds like, well, when you get to heaven, you'll be called least. I think what he's saying is that those who are in heaven will call you least. Because you won't be there. You will be insignificant. You will be without value because you didn't obey the commands of God. Because you weren't approved by God to begin with. I believe there, were going, there are going to be thousands upon thousands, 10,000 upon 10,000 people who find themselves in hell who thought they were going to heaven. Because they thought it was based on their good works and they really didn't know Jesus Christ as their Savior. And they're going to wake up one day going, what happened? And they're going to say to Jesus, Lord, Lord, didn't we cast out demons in your name? Lord, Lord, didn't we do this in your name? Lord, Lord, didn't we, didn't we, didn't we? And he's going to go, I don't even know you. Because they didn't really know him. So this stuff is really important. He says, if you do them and teach them, that just basically means if you carry out what I say here, if you live this out like you're supposed to because you're one of mine, and you teach others to do the same, you will be called great. You will be called important, esteemed. And you know what that word really means? Is blessed, approved by God. I had a guy Tuesday night when I taught this out at the West Campus who just got all bent out of shape. And I had to have a long talk with him afterwards because he, he's going through a tough time in his life right now. And he's got uh, brain cancer and he's got all kinds of family issues going on. And he goes, you know, my life sucks here. And now you're telling me my life's going to suck there. I said, well, when did I say that? He said, well, you're telling me that I'm probably not going to be great. I'm going to be least. So I'm, I'm, I can't even afford a house here. So I'm probably going to get a dump in heaven. And I said, hey, Eeyore, you know, <laughs> that's not what this is teaching. This is, not, this is not about one guy having more than you and First of all, there's no jealousy in heaven. There's no greed in heaven. There's no lust in heaven. You won't care if he does, but I don't think that's what this is teaching. It's saying that you will be called great because you're going to be in heaven and you will be a son of God and you will have everything you need for life. And guess what? You also won't have brain cancer. This is not talking about tears in heaven. I don't think it's about rewards. I believe in rewards, but that's not what this passage is about. But you got to have the right kind of righteousness. See, that's Jesus' whole point. You got to have the right kind of righteousness. And he says it's got to be greater or better than that of the Pharisees. And you got to get in the mind of the Jews sitting there going, that's impossible. Look at these guys. They smell great. They look great. They do everything right. They know the law. They even write laws that we can't keep. And they say it's impossible. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What a bummer. That's like just slam the door on me, Jesus. I guess I'm never going there. I can't be like the scribes and Pharisees. I can't be better than these guys. They even look better. They dress better. They even tell us they're better. So they must be. 
And Jesus says, you, you've, you've totally misunderstood. It's not about external righteousness. It's about internal righteousness. It's not about man-made righteousness. It's about spirit-produced righteousness. It's also not about self-righteousness. It's about my righteousness. See, what do we know about Jesus Christ? When he died on the cross, he took on our sins. And those of us who place our faith in him, we receive his righteousness. It's called the great exchange. He gets my sin, I get his righteousness. What a bummer deal for him. But what a great deal for me because I can't produce that kind of righteousness. And so I get his because no one is righteous, no, not one. You want to know what that means in the Greek? No one is righteous, no, not one. Nobody. Mother Teresa, Billy Graham. Nobody's righteous, no, not one, except if they've received the righteousness given to them by Christ. That's how you get into the, the kingdom of heaven. Man-made righteousness, pharisaical righteousness, law-keeping righteousness, legalistic righteousness will never get you into heaven. And that's what he's saying. Unless your righteousness is better than theirs. And you know what he's really saying? And I think the Pharisees even got it that day. They're not even getting into heaven. Because it's got to be better than theirs which basically says, yours isn't good enough. Now, now do you understand why they hated this guy so much? Why they immediately were looking for ways to kill Jesus? Because Jesus is basically saying, nobody, even the best of the best, is getting into heaven with that kind of righteousness. You need an alien righteousness. I love that term. Uh, don't think about the movie series. But it's, it's a righteousness that, that's outside of yourself. I love this from Martin Luther. Listen to what he says. There are two kinds of Christian righteousness. The first is alien righteousness. That is the righteousness of another instilled from without. This is the righteousness of Christ by which he justifies you for, through faith. So your righteousness isn't good enough, right? The Pharisees' righteousness isn't good enough. You need a different kind of righteousness, and it has to be imputed to you by Jesus Christ. So again, the great exchange. You get his righteousness, he takes on your sin. So when Jesus Christ looks at you, what does he see? The righteousness of Christ. You are already righteous in the eyes of God. Does that mean you're perfect? Does that mean you're sinless? No, because you have a sin nature. But he will never condemn you for your sin because Jesus Christ died for your sin. You still need to confess your sins. And he is faithful and just to forgive your sins. But you are already righteous positionally. And Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is going to help you become more righteous positionally and, and through life, through sanctification. This is the righteousness that is Christ-produced and Spirit-empowered. You can't make it up. You can't, you can't develop it. You can't manufacture it. And it's exactly the opposite of the Pharisees. And that's what leads into the next section. Because the Pharisees claimed all kinds of things. And I love what Jesus said to the Pharisees. I loved how Jesus talked to the Pharisees. Jesus was not politically correct. Listen, this is just one statement he made to them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He's saying it to their face in front of the people. He goes on. You are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but, when, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous 
to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. See, he's basically telling them, and this is later on in the book of Matthew, he's basically telling the Pharisees, you look righteous, you smell righteous, you appear righteous to everybody, but you are nothing but a sham. It's all outward, nothing inward. You keep all kinds of rules, but you really don't know me. And he even told them later on, you not only don't not know me, but because you don't know me, you don't know him. And that won him a lot of friends within the Pharisees as well. So he goes into this, this next section, and we're going to move through this rather quickly, guys, because I don't want to get so bogged down on it. But you, what I want you to hear is what's going to make this come alive to you is when he says, you have heard it said, he's really exposing false teaching and, and mainly the false teaching of the Pharisees. Because you've got to keep in mind, over the centuries, the Pharisees, the Essenes, the Sadducees, a lot of the religious leaders had taken the law and they had interpreted the law and they had added addendums to the law and they'd actually added laws of their own to the law. And it, it had become kind of a cottage industry. And a lot of what the people were hearing was not what the law really said. It was the interpretation given to them by these religious leaders. And so he's going to expose this and five times he's going to say what? You have heard it said. Now, I used to read that, and what I thought Jesus was saying is, the law says this. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying, what you have heard it says is this. It's a perception reality issue. You think you heard the law means this. I'm going to tell you what it really means. And he's going to contrast this perception versus reality. So here's the first one. You shall not murder. You've heard it said you should not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. And they're all going, yeah, I heard that. Yeah, yeah. And I would say 90, 95% of the people in the audience are going, man, and I haven't murdered. Whew. I got that one done. I'm good to go. And then Jesus goes on. But I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment, the same kind of judgment. If you insult your brother, you'll be liable to the council. If you call someone a fool, you'll be liable to hell of fire. What? Wait a second. Hold on now. See, the perception is murder is forbidden. Anyone committing murder will be judged. I'm okay with that. I have not committed murder. I got that one down. I'm good to go. Jesus says, no, the reality is anger is forbidden. Anyone who's angry with his brother will also be judged in the same way as a murderer. What? Come on, Lord. Really? See, the issue is a lack of love. It's not about murder or anger. It's about a lack of love. Loving what? Love God and love others. Those are the two great commandments, Jesus said. It's a lack of love. He's getting to literally the heart of the issue. Murder is nothing but an expression of a lack of love, contempt, disregard. You don't murder people you love. You murder people you hate. And so Jesus says, no, the issue is one of hate. And he tells us in Matthew 15, the words you speak come from your heart. You ever said something really um, harsh to someone in anger and screamed at them and cussed them out? He says, that's what defiles you, those words that come from your heart. For from the heart come what? Evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. These are what defile you, Jesus says. So when you get angry, you may not step out and murder that person, but there's a part of you that would like to. There have been people in my life that I've wanted to literally kill. 
run them over with my car. I got to the point where I hated them so much that that thought passed through my mind. I would never do it, I don't think, but I got angry enough to where I wished them dead. I wished, Lord, just take them. Get them out of my life. And so Jesus is telling us it's so much more than just murder. Okay, you can keep this law and not murder, but you still hate half the people you see. You hate the Romans. You hate this guy. You hate that guy. You have the same problem. You have a heart problem. And you cannot love God if you hate others. And that, that's not my statement. That's the statement of the Apostle John. If someone says, I love God but hates a Christian brother or sister, you're a liar. For if we don't love people we can see, how can we love God whom we can't see? And see, you, you and I do this every day. We get into, our, you know, when we do have a quiet time and when we do have a prayer time and we tell Jesus how much we love him, we tell God how much we love him, and then we turn around and we think about the person we can't stand. And God goes, you don't love me because you can't even love them. And I made them. And you can't even see me. How, how, do you, how do you love me if you can't see me? And you can't love them who you can see. See, it's a heart issue. It's a heart problem. Then he says, you shall not commit adultery. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. And again, most of the men in the room, most of the women in the room that day, all go, whew, I didn't, I haven't committed adultery. And then Jesus drops the next bomb. Well, too bad, because if you've looked at a woman with lust in your heart, you've already committed adultery. And here's what I know. Every guy in the crowd that day, just like every guy in the room tonight, that hits you, right? And if you don't think it hits you, we need to talk. Because every one of us have lusted, not once, not twice, but hundreds of times. And he says, if you have, you're guilty. The perception was adultery is forbidden, and anyone who commits adultery is guilty and stands condemned. What does Jesus say? No, lust is forbidden. Again, are you kidding me? Nobody cannot lust. But he says, no, it's forbidden. Anyone who lusts after a woman has committed adultery with her in his heart. You've already done the deed. See, it's a different kind of a lifestyle. So it's a lack of purity. That's the problem. It's not lust or adultery, guys. It's, lack of, it's a lack of purity. And you can say, well, I'd never commit adultery. And you know what? You may live your life and accomplish that goal, but you have committed adultery virtually every day of your life by looking at someone, woman who's not your wife and thinking thoughts you shouldn't think because you lack purity. So Jesus, or the Proverbs say, guard your heart above all else for it determines the course of your life. See, that's why, guys, we got to spend time in the Word. That's why we need other men to hold us accountable. That's why we need to make sure that we aren't on the Internet late at night when our wife's in bed. That's why you need to not watch certain programs, especially when your wife's gone to bed. You need to be careful because your heart is a problem. Jeremiah says it's wicked. It's deceitful. It will always deceive you. You can go from having the greatest quiet time in the world and drive past a billboard on the way to work and lust your heart out if you're not careful, if you're not really allowing the Holy Spirit to change you from the inside out. So Jesus gives this little tidbit in verse 29. I love this. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off, throw it away. Do you think he's literal? You know, um, one, of the, one of the early church fathers um, actually took him literally and castrated himself. 
That's a little much. Here's what I know. I don't know the guy personally. I don't think it worked out. Not just because he got castrated. I don't think it got rid of his lust problem. See, that's not where the problem starts. It starts in the heart. So he's, he's telling them, though, cut out your eye, throw it away, cut off your hand. What's he telling you and I? What's the problem? See, it's with the eye we covet in lust, right? You see something. You see someone. And you can blame them. You say, well, if they wouldn't dress that way, I wouldn't lust. Well, yeah, you would. They could wear a burlap sack and you would lust. Because that's the way we're wired. But you have an eye problem. With your hands, you take what doesn't belong to you. Right? And so Jesus, it's hyperbole. He's basically saying, man, cut out your eyes and cut off your hands. If that's what it takes to keep you from lusting, seeing and lusting and taking what doesn't belong to you. And it reminds me of the story of David. You're all familiar with this. David was the king. David should have been off at war. It's the time of year when kings go to war, but it tells us in 2 Samuel, what? It happened late one afternoon. David arose from his couch, walked out on the roof of the king's house. He saw with his eyes from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful, lusted. How do I know he lusted? Because of what he does next. So David sent messengers and took her with you know, that idea of hands, taking her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. So when it says he saw Bathsheba, the Hebrew word is ra'ah. It means to behold, to look upon, to desire, to like, want. And then the word took means lakak. It means to seize, to take, to carry away. So Jesus is just being hyperbolic and saying, guys, the, the problem is so bad. Cut out your eyes and cut off your hands. Is that what, it's, what it takes? But it's really a heart issue. It's a purity issue. So Paul tells us, put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires. Don't be greedy for a greedy person is an idolater worshiping the things of this world because of these sins, the anger of God is coming. Guys, here's what I know about you because I know it's true of me. You can go home tonight after a great Bible study and you can turn on the TV and you can start to watch a program knowing, you know, the little, if you have Netflix or, you know, Hulu and it, you know, um, How's it start out? Um, this content is for adults only, you know? And you, you, you see that and go, well, that's probably the violence. You've watched this program a hundred times. You know it's not the violence. It's the sex. And you think, I, it doesn't really affect me, and I'm, I'm just going to watch it anyway. What does it say here? Put to death the sinful earthly things lurking within you. Have nothing to do with sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire. Don't watch it. Don't feed your brain with it. Because if you think it's not affecting you, you are insane. Delusional. And yet that's, that's what we do. And we excuse it. It's a purity issue. So he goes on and he talks about this one, which I, I really didn't want to get into tonight, but I have to because Jesus did. Remember, these are Jesus' words. They're not mine. Don't get mad at me. He says, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. Now, odds in the crowd changed a little bit at this point. Probably a lot of people didn't commit murder. A lot of people didn't do the other, but they've probably a bunch of them committed adultery because it was a fairly common thing in that day and age to, to uh, divorce. And so the perception is it's okay. Divorce is possible under certain conditions. You just have to follow the rules. But Jesus says, no, divorce results in adultery. 
Marriage was intended to be a lifelong covenant between two people. Now, guys, I'll, I'll, I'll throw this out there. If you're divorced, and I know there's divorced guys in the room, um, God is a gracious God. God forgives divorce. Divorce is not the unforgivable sin. God forgives. God is gracious. There are many of you who've married other uh, wives and you have a wonderful God-blessed marriage and God has given you children and God has blessed that marriage. That is the grace of God. It is not God's approval on your divorce. Divorce is wrong. And as far as this passage says, there's only one reason to even think about divorce and it's for unfaithfulness. Because the issue here is about faithfulness. It's really not about the right to divorce. And I can take this book and I can pretty much prove any right I want to claim. I have the right to do this. I have the right to do that. I have the right to watch whatever I want to. I have the right to do whatever I want to. I have the right to do. And Paul will talk about in many of his letters about your rights and what to do with your rights. Die to them. It's about faithfulness. So the, Jesus, the Pharisees came up to Jesus one day later on in Matthew chapter 19. He says, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And he answered, have you not read that he, is cre- he who created them from the beginning, from the beginning, made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. That is used in wedding after wedding after wedding. We've heard it. It's supernatural. It's not physical. It's not this idea of having sex. It's a mysterious, mystical, spiritual thing that God accomplishes when two people come together. From that point forward, God looks at them and he sees one unit. And he says, let nobody separate it. God hates divorce. God is against divorce. So they say, well, wait a minute. Didn't Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Yes, he did. And so Jesus says, well, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, there it is again, and marries another commits adultery. So guys, I don't know what you're going to do with this. um, Other than the fact that what Jesus is trying to teach you is this idea of faithfulness. Because God is faithful. He never intended for divorce to be an option. The only reason he allowed Moses to give this option of a certificate of divorce is because the people were so dadgum stubborn. And they were going to do it anyway. But to do so is an act of unfaithfulness. And what does he say? The only grounds for divorce, if there is any at all, is unfaithfulness. If your spouse is unfaithful. If they've not remained committed to you, that's the only grounds, but it doesn't mean you should anyway. Why is it important? Because God is a faithful God. And all throughout the Old Testament, Jesus had a problem with who? The people of Israel. Why? Because they were unfaithful. Listen to what he says. Have you seen what fickle Israel has done? He's talking to the southern kingdom of Judah about the northern kingdom of Israel that's already gone into captivity because of their unfaithfulness. So he tells the people of Judah... Through the prophet Jeremiah, like a wife who commits adultery, Israel, the northern kingdom, has worshipped other gods on every hill, under every green tree. I thought, God says, after she's done all this, she will return to me. She didn't return. And her faithless sister Judah, the southern kingdom, saw it, 
She saw that I divorced faithless Israel because of her adultery, sent her into captivity, but that treacherous sister Judah had no fear, and now she too has left me and given herself to prostitution. Israel treated it all so lightly. She thought nothing of committing adultery by worshiping idols made of wood and stone. So now the land has been polluted. But despite all this, her faithless sister Judah has never sincerely returned to me. She has only pretended to be sorry. I, the Lord, have spoken. See, faithfulness is really important to God because he's a faithful God. Unfaithfulness is appalling to God and he deals with it. I'm reading through Habakkuk right now. And the book of Habakkuk is all about the unfaithfulness of the people of Judah and how he tells them, guess what? I'm going to send the Babylonians and they're going to conquer you. Assyrians conquered your sister to the north and I'm going to send another group to conquer you in the south. Why? Because you're unfaithful. Faithfulness is so important. The issue is faithfulness, not about just divorce. How can we remain faithful to God if we can't remain faithful to our spouse? So our lack of commitment reveals our heart problem, not one of, I just can't get along with my wife. Well, then he goes on. He talks about oaths. This one doesn't really seem to matter much to us. It was a real problem for the Jews because they had this uh, elaborate system of oaths. Um, I put it in your notes. There's a little, uh, a little blurb in there about how they looked at oaths. Uh, for instance, they would say, if you swear by the temple, it's one thing, your oath is not binding. If you swear by the gold in the temple, it is binding. And they had all these kind of loopholes. And so it was a way to make a, uh, a, an oath and say, I'll keep my word, but you could get out of it. It's like crossing your fingers and put them behind your, behind your back. It was a problem with the Israelites. So he says, your perception is back up your promises with an oath. Making an oath will keep you honest. If I say, if I swear by God, if I swear by the temple, if I swear by this, swear by that, it'll, it'll, it'll mean my word is good. But here's the reality. Back up your promises with action. Why do you need an oath to begin with? Speak truth. Do what you say you're going to do. The issue is a lack of truthfulness, not oaths. See, what the Pharisees had done is they basically put in loopholes and they would say, well, I swear by this, knowing that because of these laws they created, I don't really have to keep it. I swear I'll do it, but I don't really have to because remember, I didn't swear on the gold, I swore on the temple. It, it, was, it was silliness, it was ridiculous, but it was all about truthfulness. As far as God's concerned, all oaths are solemn pledges to do what? Tell the truth, do the truth. And you will be held accountable by God. So later on again in Matthew, Jesus says to the Pharisees, blind guides, what sorrow awaits you? You say that it means nothing to swear by God's temple, but that it's binding to swear by the gold in the temple. Blind fools, which, which is more important, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? And you say that to swear by the altar is not binding, but to swear by the gifts in the altar is binding. You see the silliness of what they're doing? How blind, for which is more important, the gift on the altar or the altar that makes the gift sacred? When you swear by the altar, you're swearing by it and by everything on it. And when you swear by the temple, you're swearing by it and by God who lives in it. And when you swear by heaven, you are swearing by the throne of God and by God who sits on the throne. God takes your oath seriously. If you're going to say you're going to do something, dadgummit, do it. Speak truth. Say yes if you mean yes, say no if you mean no, and speak the truth in love, as we read later on in the letters of Paul. And then as he begins to wrap this up, he gets into this whole lex talionis, the, the, the law of the land. 
And he says, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's what you've heard taught. That's what you live by. But I say to you, do not resist the one who's evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other one. We hate this verse. I hate this verse. I don't want to live this way. When I was growing up, uh, I grew up in New York. And uh, New York is not a friendly place. Um, I was um, a transplant, but I was transplanted at four. My dad was a Southern Baptist pastor, and we lived in New York. And I was one of the few kids in my school who went to a Southern Baptist church, as you can well imagine, in New York. And uh, in my school, um, I kind of stuck out like a sore thumb. And um, I was small, and I was easy pickings for all the bullies in school. And I did not want to live by anything other than this. I wanted revenge. I went home every day seeking revenge. How could I get even? I'm not big enough, but if I could somehow kill these kids, I would. Because I love this, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And then Jesus says, no, no, turn the other cheek. What are you, nuts? Jesus, you didn't grow up in New York. You don't know what that's like. And the Jews didn't like it either. They said payback is an option. Retribution is permitted by God. But Jesus says, no, 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 payback evil with good. Oh, come on, Lord. Seek reconciliation, not retribution. It's about self-sacrifice. Does anybody like to self-sacrifice? If you do, I'd love to meet you and get your phone number and have you come self-sacrifice for me. They don't want to self-sacrifice. They'd rather get revenge. See, what's happened here is they had taken a law of God and they had twisted it into personal vendettas. Vigilantism. Because here's what the law really said. Whoever takes a human life shall surely be put to death. Whoever takes an animal life shall make it good, life for life. If you injure your neighbor... The same thing will be done to you. It was a law, but it was a corporate law to be administered by judges. What they had done by virtue of the Pharisees is turned it into a personal vendetta, vigilante justice. You do something to me, I'll do it to you. It'd be like if I went home tonight and my neighbor drove across my yard and did donuts. You know what I'd want to do? Get in my car, drive into his yard and do donuts. And the next day he'd do something in my yard and the next day I'd do it back to him. That's what had happened. It, it had become personal justice. Went from corporate to personal revenge. And the original law was meant to keep that from happening. They didn't want personal revenge taking place. But the Pharisees and religious leaders had twisted it. Had put loopholes in. And justice was gone. So what does he say? Don't resist the one who's evil. Turn the other cheek. Give your cloak as well. Go the extra mile. Give to the one who begs. What is he telling you and I? He's teaching you not to retaliate, not to seek revenge, not to seek retribution. It's not about self-defense. You, God's not telling you don't defend yourself. If somebody breaks into your home, defend yourself. He's not promoting pacifism, that we shouldn't go to war. That's not what this verse is talking about. But he is talking about a change in your heart, living differently responding in love and not anger. So here's basically, these are in your notes, but these are what these phrases mean. Turn the other cheek. Be willing to suffer shame. Let him have your cloak as well. Be willing to suffer loss. He sues you for this, give him your cloak too. Go with him two miles. Be willing to suffer inconvenience. I don't want to go two miles. Do it anyway. Give to the one who begs from you. Be willing to be taken advantage of. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Be willing to suffer financial loss. And here's the caveat for the whole thing. Why? For the sake of the kingdom and the salvation of the lost. 
See, if you don't put that last part in, none of this makes sense. But Jesus is talking about the kingdom, and the kingdom is about what? The kingdom of heaven and salvation and the gospel. The gospel and the kingdom are, are totally connected. And so do these things because your goal is to save the lost and to grow the kingdom. So you're willing to do... Jesus Christ did every one of these for you. In essence, he gave it all. He sacrificed it all for your behalf. And then he says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. What they've done with this one, guys, is basically said, all the Bible says is I have to love God and love my neighbor, but I don't have to love my enemy. And so what they do? They hated their enemies. And they said, love has its limits. Our enemies are unworthy of love. And Jesus says, godly love knows no bounds. There's no place for partiality. So the issue is impartial love, not prejudice or hate. You don't love the way you're supposed to love. And here's where this hits me, guys. God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us. When? While you were a sinner. See, I got lots of people in my life who I don't think are are worth loving. That I just don't think deserve my love. What if God treated you that way? But see, Jesus came and died while we were still sinners. Ephesians 5. Live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Isn't it kind of funny how you can see somebody and go, I hate that person. I'm not going to love that person. They don't deserve my love. And then you turn right back around and say, God, you know, would you show me some love today? I really need some love today. And he looks at you and goes, really? After what you, why should I? I sent my son to die for you, and you won't love your neighbor. You, and, he, and the last thing we're going to end with is this one. This is the bombshell, right? Be perfect. What kind of perfect? Like God's perfect. Imitate God. How did God love you? How did God love me? When I was deeply mired in sin, he sent his son to die for me. And it's proof of his love. And that's all he's asking me to do. All he's asking you to do. Is it impossible? Yes. It was impossible the day he said it. It's still impossible today, apart from Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is demanding nothing short of sinless perfection. Wait a minute, Ken. Nobody can do that. You're exactly right. But it doesn't mean he's grading on the curve and, well, none of you can do it, therefore I don't expect it. No, God expects sinless perfection. Will we carry it off in this life? No. We will one day when we are finally glorified. But we are to grow in this area of our lives, learning to love those who aren't lovable. We're incapable of pulling any of this off without Christ. That's the whole message of this passage. So here's your questions for tonight, guys. There's three of them, and you probably won't get through them all, but try. Here's the first one. When you hear the phrase, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, what comes into your mind? Be honest. What comes into your mind? Frustration? Just, I give up. It's worthless. I'll never pull it off. Secondly, does living the Christian life feel impossible at times? Based on what we've looked at today, what might be missing? What's the problem? Is it God or might it be you? If it is you, what's your problem? And then finally, have somebody read 2 Peter 1, 3 out loud. Discuss what you think it is that God has given us to make living the Christian life possible. God has given you everything for life and godliness through Jesus Christ.
So, as Christians, we have what those in the crowd that they didn't yet have, and yet we still struggle. Why? They didn't have the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ hadn't died. He hadn't rose again. Hadn't ascended on high. Holy Spirit hadn't come. They didn't yet have salvation. They struggled with these words. Why do we struggle with them when we have all of that? So those are your three questions. Spend some time around the tables. Um, pray for each other before you go tonight. And hopefully I'll see you guys next week. Let me